1: to the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 7. I'm your host, Brian. And I'm joined today by my buddy, Luke Whittington. How are you doing, Luke?
2: Doing great. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, well, back on because actually you were in Episode 4, if I'm not mistaken, though at the time you didn't know you were going to be on Episode 4.
2: <laughs> not a problem at all glad to be a reappearance <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah we're just uh, kind of using old old stock footage there but you know i thought that was a good conversation about flight school and everything and didn't seem uh worthwhile to kind of rehash what we had already talked about and probably come off a little fake so um but yeah so we're going to close out kind of this uh series if you will on training so we did uh the navy of course and which really kind of covers the marines and the coast guard so uh, really all we have left is the dirty air force uh, which we have our our friend sean gavin from the new york air national guard he's going to talk to us about air force flight school uh but first we did have some listener questions and luke i was hoping you could help me out with this one so this comes from he signs off uh as paul uh cw4 retired uh but i'm gathering from his question and some of the comments that he has uh, been retired for quite a while so thank you for your service there paul and uh It says here that, I heard the Army released a lot of OH-58 Delta pilots when they closed out the program. So he's talking about divestiture of the OH-58 back in, what was that, 2015?
2: 2016.
1: Yep, 2015. Okay, 2015. Uh, He says, is that true? And uh, if so, about what percentage did they let go? So that's a pretty complicated uh, question because, of course, as as Paul knows and as you and I know, the the Army has warrant officers and commission officers. Uh, so it's going to be kind of a different population. So uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot there, Luke, but you don't have any idea of, of roughly percentage uh, regarding warrant officers that were cut, basically after the 58 was cut.
2: So not exact numbers uh, that HRC would have by any stretch, sure. but the the initial selection to uh, you know get age 64 transitions was somewhere in that 20 to 22 percent range. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a extremely low percentage that got other aircraft transitions. And of course they did that uh, review board to see who yeah. was, you know, who the cream of the crop was, um, which was an interesting process too, because it was not a formal board. So it kind of, kind of dodged in out of some uh, legal things there, but uh, you know, they that's what they had to do to make it happen. Uh, but I think around, Thirty percent actually got to stay in some capacity, so it was probably wow. close to. Uh, it might be a little higher if you count the guys that went to UAS, yeah. which which was a fair number of them. They really bolstered up the warrant officer population for the UAS branch.
3: Sure.
2: Uh, but it was it was a high kick to the curb, right?
1: Well, because at that point we didn't have much of a UAS infrastructure when it came to personnel and, and certainly not warrant officers. So it was kind of a good timing in, in regards to you had bodies to put into places. And so I, I know I've met quite a few 58 guys who were, who were now UAS. Um, but yeah. And that's kind of the trouble on the warrant officer side is, you know, once your aircraft goes away the army, you know, if you're not flying something, the army's probably struggling to, to figure out what to do with you, you know, in mass, you know, it's got the onesies and twosies you can kind of put here and there uh, but for the warrant officers, yeah, that's, that's, that, that sounds about the numbers that I remember here and, you know, around 30, 40% that, that actually got to kind of stay. I mean, and then the rest were just kind of let go.
2: There were several that, uh, decided to just leave cause they knew they weren't going to, you know, get a transition. Yeah. There were several that, uh, there was actually a really high rate of people that rejected the transition, turned it down because they did yeah. not want to fly Apaches. Yeah.
1: Or, or that, anything
2: else. Right. And that was, that was kind of an interesting, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. There's a couple of different things you can pull from that. Number one, obviously our community loved our mission and what our role was on the battlefield. We're all very passionate about it. I think very uh, cohesive as a, for an airframe population, you know, I think that was pretty unique. So that was one part. The other one is a personal opinion, but I think that they made some decisions that that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have wanted to have to make number one to have to yeah. cut people, uh, but number two, I think they made it on a lot of assumptions that everybody grew up dying to be an Apache pilot, <laughs> and that turned out not to be the case. You know, Yeah, that's not true.
1: Well, I think there's some practicality to it as well. So if you're sitting at you know 15, 16 years in service, you know you you may want to hang in there, of course, to hit your 20. But if you're at 10 years now, you're looking at you know, changing airframes. I don't remember what the ADSO that came with that. So you're kind of at that hump where, well, now it's time to, you know, maybe the army's kind of made a decision for me. I can go do something different. So yeah, yeah I, I mean, everyone
2: had a different situation. Yeah, absolutely. It was two-year concurrent ADSO, which is a pretty good deal for picking up a, another aircraft yeah. location. You know, it moved yeah. a lot of guys from single engine to multi-engine. Uh, and yeah. then if they got e-models out of it, then they're also doing multi-engine IFR which yeah. is that's a that's a benefit right there too when you get out so you know not yeah. all bad definitely some trade-offs and like i said i wouldn't i would not have wanted to have been in the hot seat to make those decisions Uh yeah. talk to the guys that did have to make those decisions and you know i i get what they did and why they had to do it uh and it was just unfortunate so
1: yeah and it kind of came out of nowhere i think for a lot of people um Yeah. And then on the commission side of the house, you know, it's a little bit different because um, as I alluded to with the warrant officers, you know, it's kind of the bread and butter, but for the commission side, there's plenty of other jobs in the military that they can find for you. And uh, you know, I was one of the lucky ones that did get a transition, but I remember being uh, in a a squadron XO position and some of my XOs to left and right did not get an aircraft transition, but they were still, you know, in a line unit doing that job where they would have been flying had they gotten a transition and the army can find plenty of jobs for people like that and kind of you know, you can ride out the rest of your career never touching another aircraft. And, and I think some people are happy to do that, but for the most part, it was, you know, it was not a good time for, for others. But, um, but yeah, I guess to, uh, to, to make a short answer along there, Paul, uh, it absolutely did happen. And it happens across the board of around the same time that the, uh, divestiture was happening. I, uh, went to a course somewhere in DC. It was like a couple of days and I was in there with an air force pilot and he was a, uh, Osprey pilot and he had been, um, a uh, MH-53 guy before that, and he was kind of describing the same thing that happened in the Air Force, where he was an MH-53 guy, and he kind of saw the writing on the wall early and managed to squeeze in a transition, and he said a lot of his buddies were like, well, you know, the Air Force is going to take care of me when it's, when it's time, they'll just transfer me over and, you know, the music stopped and not everyone had a chair to sit in. So, uh, it, it, it's not a army thing. It's, it looks, it's a military thing. And, you know, it, there was a lot of this talk when that was happening of like, okay, yeah, but you're cutting, you know, so many 58 guys, but you're not cutting any Apache guys, you know, and the, and the idea being that, well, there's probably one or two Apache guys who are not as good, you know, whatever standard you're going to use as good and bad, but not as good as these Kiowa guys you are going to get rid of. And, and while that's true, how do you, how do you manage that? You know, there's, there's money associated, right? I well, mean, just because- so
2: there's a couple of interesting things there because I was in the first batch, like I was in the first transition class that was all 58D guys. Hmm. Okay. Which is kind of funny in itself. Uh, but of that same, in that same time period, um, basically I found out that I got selected for W4. And two weeks later, got an, e- in, you know, an email that was my reservation for the course. I was like, "No, I, uh, what, what's this all about?" They're like, "Oh, you're going." It's like, "Well, I just finished all this Lakota training, and I had just finished the Lakota uh, instructor pilot transition course, which I was in the first class of that to get the whole transition to Lakotas up for flight school. So yeah. I kind of went from one course to another, uh, which was interesting. But in of that year group or my promotion year group, there were less than 10 of us picked up for W4, if I remember correctly. And so it was like far below 30% of the available people who make W4 for 58Ds. It was, it was a really, really low pickup. Yeah. And for 64s, it was like 120%. There was a guy at Tickham who had been medically grounded and Cellconned that made it from three to four, allegedly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was kind of interesting because basically they were promoting dead W3s, if you were Apache qualified. Uh, But then they were cutting mass amounts of senior W3s in the 58 community. Hmm. And the other thing that's interesting, not to belabor this for too long and take up the whole time, but this was just kind of a a big event that happened and unfolded. You know, the UH UH-60 population consistently ran above 110%. None of them got cut. Yeah, How's that work? You know, there wasn't a shortage. <laughs> so you're telling yeah. me they couldn't have done a review board and cut from the bottom rather yeah. than get rid of a bunch of guys that were really invested in? It? Don't get me wrong. We had our, our special children, too. But Fair there could have been. been a little different approach that I think would have been more equitable than promoting the dead, not trimming the fat, and just kicking a whole bunch of highly skilled dudes to the street and do dads.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's certainly fuzzy math, and I don't envy anyone who had to uh, kind of work that out and, and figure out uh, the right answer, because there probably is no right answer. But it, it did seem a little you know, chaotic at the time, uh, but yeah, well, it is what it is.
2: Yeah, and we talked about the ripple effect then as well, because they knew that they were going to have to cut X amount. Well, at the same time, they're going to get rid of the aircraft. So for that period of time, there would be nobody, no aircraft to fly for any of those people. And a lot of people went into that where they were going to get a transition, but they had to wait two plus years or whatever. So <laughs> we told them, we said, you should find it. Out. Don't cut them. Why don't you you know, bring them to Rucker, train them as instructor pilots, staff kind of re-green the force out here, especially on like the tactical training side. You could get more throughput and everything else. Well, they knew they had a a white book projected, like a forecasted decline in the white book already. So there was really nothing for him to do. And so we said, well, if you do that, then when you get all these new 64 airframes fielding the Echo, you're going to be short two to three squadrons or battalion size mm-hmm. elements. Lo and behold, yeah. three years later, that's where they were. And then they got back to bonus and everything else. So anyway, that horse is dead. Yeah, anymore.
1: troubling to kind than of frame needed. it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to understand that the way the budget works – you know, you, you can only do so much because the budget is a year to year. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I imagine there's some ripple effect with with personnel and manning, you know, with regards to that as well. So, um,
2: but cool. yeah. <laughs> so another fun 50 AD fact. Did you know that the last year that the OH 50 AD was a line item on the budget was 2006?
1: Oh, wow. No, I did not know that.
2: So United 3 deployments in an aircraft that was not even officially a line item number in the budget.
1: That explains why I couldn't get new seat cushions.
2: Yep, well, that's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they built the Fox Model 58 out of unspent EM yeah. funds from the other aircraft. Think about that.
1: Yeah, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, moving money around. I I do remember all the new stuff that when they cut the Comanche, you know, brand new building for the Apache guys to learn stuff in. (laughs) Brand new Fox model.
2: (laughs) So, but Um, anyway, all that really centers around uh, the training availability and the training potential to actually have a ready force of qualified pilots. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it takes a while. Well, you know, we can go into it, but it, it takes a while to train a guy in Apache, even though I think that they, Probably could have relooked the uh, training pipeline for fifty-eight guys because by by the end of the fourth month, I was I was just tired. I didn't want to do it anymore. You know, it just seemed to be a kind of a snail's pace. But um, that's nah, neither here nor there. Okay, well, yeah. So I think we've definitely answered Paul's question. Hopefully, uh, if not, send us another note and we'll we'll will try to expand a little bit further. Um, but flight school. Uh, yeah, we're gonna finish up this series. And I know you've had a chance to listen to it. Any thoughts before we roll into it?
2: Uh, No, I would. Well, I mean, I I say no, but then I'm going to start talking again. I do apologize. But uh, I thought it was great hearing his journey. And I think uh, the listeners will enjoy it, too. Uh, And it really piqued my interest because uh, as we looked at revamping training, we brought the Lakota on, we were looking at adopting some of the Air Force uh, training strategies. So,
1: Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, with that said, we'll go ahead and roll into the interview and I'll see you on the other side. Hey everybody, I'm here with Major Sean Gavin from the New York Air National Guard. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing well, Brian. Thanks for the uh thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad uh glad we could make this happen. We've been talking now for a while. Um Yeah, so you know, the focus today, like we talked about, is is kind of going through the different flight schools and, and really for the listeners to, to get an understanding and appreciation of the training that that happens in the different services and and of course being a good army guy. I left the Air Force for last, but Naturally. um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> no, just the way it, the way it turned out. But uh, uh, yeah, we've been talking a little bit, and just kind of wanted to go through you know your experiences and, and share what it's like going through the the Air Force uh, flight school. Uh, but first, just tell us a little bit about you. You know where you're from, and, and how you got to there to where you are now.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so I I grew up in uh, Hudson Valley of uh, of New York, um, not too far from West Point actually, um, and uh, never moved from uh, from there until uh, college. Went down to college at a Florida Institute of Technology down in Melbourne, Florida. Um, and at that point, you know, I only kind of knew about, well, there's the service academies and then there's ROTC as ways to kind of become a military pilot, which I always wanted to become. I just wasn't sure who I wanted to fly for, or really what I wanted to fly. Um, Florida Tech had an aviation program, but the only ROTC program they had was, uh, was Army. So I, I opted for that. Um, because I was like, "Oh, Hey, cool. I can fly, you know, naturally, like, kind of like we were talking about before, uh, Apaches or, you know, something that shoots mm. things and blow things up. Um, mm. <laughs> so, uh, I did that for about a year. I talked to some army aviators and they were like, if you want to fly for your entire career, you should probably go warrant or you should go somewhere else. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sure. uh, so, so I kind of <laughs> looked at that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the army, ROTC battalion down there was, was awesome. Um, but I was like, yeah, thanks, but thanks, but no thanks. Um, and kind of started looking at some other, um, some other options. Um, and eventually found out about how I could get in through the uh, Air National Guard through, uh, through pilot training there, which is its own animal that we can talk about here in a bit. Um, but, uh, got selected for them eventually, um, through, uh, through New York Air National Guard, 101st Rescue Squadron, and, uh, went to pilot training, started, in uh, 2008 after I got commissioned in 07 through essentially the Guard uh, Officer Candidate School and uh, was in the pipeline for about two years and I've been back at the 101st uh, since July 2010.
1: Okay. All right. So, yeah, to to your point of, of who flies most when, and, and I, I agree with the, the advice that you were given as, as an Army commissioned officer, flying is, <laughs> is definitely not your, your primary. But, you know, I, I think to... I'm sure you can acknowledge that there's probably jobs that, you know, in the air force and certainly, you know, talking to my last guest in the Navy, you know, flying sometimes does take a backseat to oh, I, I, certain I have, jobs.
2: Yeah. It's and I mean- think it's important.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think it's important that people understand that uh, when they, when they look at these careers, because I talk to a lot of young guys who, who want to be want to fly and, and it's always trying to get them to understand like, Hey, you know, I, I got it. I want to fly too, but you know, there's, right. There's certain things that, that need to be done and only you can do them and, uh, yeah, it just kind of depends. And and sometimes you're lucky and sometimes uh, you, you do get to fly predominantly and then sometimes not so lucky, but okay. So, um, and I guess there's probably some differences too for your track. Um, certainly this, the same for, for us when we talk about the guard and reserve is, you know, it sounds like you were already sort of selected, you, you know, you were already accepted into a unit and knew you were going to fly whatever that unit flew. Is that Air assessment.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of found out about the guard route. Um, I believe it was sophomore year of college. One of our alumni actually flew down um, an HC-130, which is the the rescue version of a C-130, um, mm. and was talking to him. I was kind of like, man, this seems kind of cool, but we don't have ROTC, and obviously I'm not in an academy. It's like, what do you mean? Um, so I found out that um, individual Air National Guard units will actually go ahead and they'll project different pilot vacancies based on uh, retirements or separations, you know, down the road, how many people right. they need to keep the manning up and they'll hold um, basically pilot training boards um, for people who aren't rated air force pilots yet. They obviously take people from, from active duty and other guard units if they're interested, um, sure. you know, and all that. But um, it's essentially, it's essentially kind of like, a cross between applying for a job and kind of rushing for like a fraternity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there's there's um, different exams you need to take. Um, Air Force officer qualifying test, is kind of like the Air Force SAT uh, for officers. Um, you put a resume together, any sort of flight hours, letters of recommendation. It, it varies by unit, um, but you can try and find out either from their website or from the recruiter. And so you put this whole application package together, you submit it, and then they'll go ahead, look through those, and select who they want to interview. And then from the interviews, they'll select based on how many people they need, um, you know, usually primary and alternate candidates to be selected for uh, for flight training. So that's, you know, it, it, it was about a year's worth of interviewing. Um, I interviewed at New York twice. Um, and then I interviewed at uh, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, um, and Maryland, I believe, which all had different types of aircraft, um, you know, to kind of get myself a uh, get myself a pilot slot
1: yeah yeah i always kind of tell people uh I, I started my career in the guard i was in the south carolina guard for about okay. two and a half years as a, as a ground guy as an armor guy Sure. and i, I went to an early commissioning program so when i commissioned <laughs> i was 19 years old and um i came out as a branched armor guy a tank guy but i i could really could have gone anywhere because it wasn't really solidified in the sense that i hadn't been to school but I did the same thing. I kind of shopped around and found a unit that, you know, needed a a tank platoon leader and, and same kind of deal. I kind of went in and interviewed and, you know, they called me later and says, yeah, OK, how do you feel about being a tank platoon leader? I was like, sounds great. So, um, yeah, so the guard is kind of this sort of club mentality. Like you said, you're interviewing for a job. And I remember my stick buddy in flight school, he was a California National Guard guy. And, yeah, I mean, he showed up knowing I'm going to fly Blackhawks. Right. Because, you know, all of those active guys were like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to end up flying. You yep. know, you're, you're nervous and worried about it. And these guys uh, really nothing to worry about other than just passing. But
3: exactly. OK.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. So talk us through it. So you get selected, you you know, you know, you're going to fly something or, you know, at least assuming that you pass everything. But uh, you've, you've been selected to go to flight training. What What's the next step? Yeah. So the next step is um, if you're not commissioned already, they'll, they'll send you
3: you know, obviously i have to get commissioned. So, um, it's basically officer candidate school. Um, you know, it used to be a little bit shorter, but now I think it's, it's 12 or 13 weeks and now it's down in, um, Montgomery, Alabama, Maxwell air force base. Um, so then after that, um, it's kind of changed a little bit over the years. I didn't have to go to what was called initial flight screening out in uh, Pueblo, Colorado. I know they still send some people there. Uh, the vast majority of active duty people go, but because of my prior flight experience, uh, having a, um, at least a private pilot license back then I was I didn't have to go out there and uh, do that and that was basically flying um small general aviation aircraft um but kind of in an air force you know pilot training training environment um but anyway um once you get to the actual pilot training pipeline itself um at the moment the way it works is everyone goes through the same first two phases together um, and that's at a few different bases so you could go to um Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma, Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi, um, Shepard Air Force Base in Texas, which is mainly fighter bomber guys, but not all the time. Um, and then there's Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas, which is where I ended up. Um, so phase one is um, pretty much all academics. It's all ground-based academics. You have some simulators to work over your ground procedures, um, so on and so forth. Uh, that work, that's about six weeks. Um, it's known as Slackademics because you don't know how much free time you have until you hit the flight line, which is, which is phase two, um, phase two is, uh, in the T six Texan two, um, it's a single engine turboprop um, with, uh, one guy in the front, one guy in the back. Um, it was an awesome airplane to fly except for the guy in the back telling you everything you were doing was wrong all the time. Yeah. Story <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, probably none of my former instructors are listening to this, but I love you guys. Um, <laughs> So there's a few different phases they put you through there. Um, and again, all this is, it's kind of in flux right now. Um, they're looking at integrating some virtual reality, modifying the syllabus. Um, but when I went through, there was a contact phase, which is um, all visual maneuvers. And it started out with the very basic stuff, traffic patterns, um, traffic pattern stalls, you know, learning how to basically fly the aircraft and not get yourself in a dangerous situation, or if you were in one, how to get yourself out. Um, and then that went into advanced uh, aerobatics, uh, then you went to instrument phase and then formation phase uh, at the end. That was about um, that was about five or six months worth. Um, just under ninety hours is what I logged in T six itself, um, not simulators or anything like that. Just purely the aircraft. Um, which you can make an argument for. Yeah, it's it's good for everyone to go through all that stuff. Or maybe I should tailor it back if someone knows they're going to a certain aircraft. But um, I appreciated yeah. it. Um, it I learned a lot, even being a prior civilian fixed-wing guy I learned a ton um and really the networking opportunities and you know the opportunity to learn how to fixed-wing guys operate in a majority fixed-wing force was really really
1: helpful to me um and at the end of the day day, I mean that's probably what you're you're still gaining from it like you said you've already got a pilot's license and you already know you're gonna fly helicopters but you're you're making friends and and learning how the the big big air force works
3: yeah and to be honest like I said the airplane itself I thought was a hell of a lot of fun Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah um so at the end of phase two, or just prior to it, um, they pass around pretty much a dream sheet, as they call it, for, for everyone who doesn't already know where they're going, um, who's in Guard or Reserve. And so there's a few different tracks you can choose. They've, they've bumped it down to three now. It used to be four when I was in there. But So there's the fighter-bomber track, which will send you to the T-38 uh, training aircraft, uh, there's the tanker transport, which sends you to the T1, which is uh, kind of like a twin engine, looks like a small business jet, like a Beechcraft jet. Um, and then there's there's rotary wing, which sends you to uh, sends you to Fort Rucker to fly now entirely the the TH1. It's it's a, it's an upgraded UE, single engine UE. Right. Um, so you know there's not a lot of helicopter pilots in the Air Force in general. Um and yeah. you know everyone thought oh man you're going to Fort Rucker you're gonna train with the army you know, you're gonna be intense and I'm like no nah, man yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> every I'm, army base <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly uh <laughs> no man one, one that's that's not the case and and two it's it's Air Force aircraft Air Force instructors Air Force
1: squadron we just yeah. happen to be on an army base um yeah I was gonna say I never interacted with any Air Force guys anytime yeah. I went to Rucker yeah, yeah we you knew they were there but we're you, a, you a small kill. community man it's yeah yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even know where you guys did anything. Like, did you guys <laughs> fly out of Cairns or where where were they? Oh, uh, gosh.
3: Uh, I was, I was, they were flying out of Cairns when I was there. Prior to that, yeah. they had been at low, um, for a bit. Okay.
1: Um, okay. So, yeah, it kind of, kind we're of, dirty time. lift guys hang out. So, yeah, that's why <laughs> I never know, but, uh, yeah, no, that's, you're right. I mean, you never, never really cross paths unless you're at right. I guess.
3: Yeah. So, phase three, uh, for Air Force helicopter, and, um, additionally, some tilt rotor guys, the aircraft that can't decide whether it's a helicopter or an airplane. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> exactly it's uh it's at Fort Rucker. It's all in the TH1 upgraded uh UE. And uh I had a hundred and twelve hours there and that was um that was right around just over five months of training um, down at Fort yeah. Rucker. Um and again you had different phases. You had your basic, you know, kind of contact, visual maneuvers phase, trying not to kill yourself. Um and learn how to get out of bad situations. Uh, remote phase, which is all about, hey, here's something that's off of an airport you can land to. Instruments. And then um, day tactical. And then you moved into night phase. So you actually flew night vision goggles uh, before you were winged uh, at Fort Rucker, which is pretty cool. Um, and then at the end of phase three, you you you're rated. You you graduate. You get your wings. Um, and just like prior to end of phase two, at the end of phase three in Fort Rucker, they pass around the dream sheet, if you don't know where you're going. Um, and kind of the options are, okay, do you want to go to 60s? Um, do you want to go to Huey's or it'll be the, the 139 soon? Um, or do you want to go to, uh, CVs and, you know, different bases that they have available and everyone's
1: ranked and you get what you get. Um, yeah. So going back, uh, just kind of the start. So you got to basically clep out of the first phase because you already had a, pilot's license
3: well it was, uh, that that, was, that was just yeah that was just um uh what was it introductory flight screening yeah i still went through right.
1: phase one academics yeah sure okay my, my wrong term but okay oh, the first the first thing that you had to do if you're a, a straight off the street never flown an airplane that right guy you're going to go to this initial do, do they get a Pilots license out of that, or is it just enough? Oh gosh, that's a good
3: question. I don't, I don't think they get a PPL out of that. I do know they definitely solo when they're there at minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah, because I think they would need. I I guess I think it's forty hours of the FAA minimum. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, Yeah. Okay. Okay, but you already had it, so you go there uh to do your phase one and and, and learn the fixed wing stuff and you said it takes about five months, you get about you got about ninety hours or so mm-hmm. and then off to beautiful Fort Rucker. Absolutely. Uh, in the the crater of of LA, lower Alabama, uh which is relatively close to the beaches, so it's not terrible. Hey, hey,
3: hey man, after after Del Rio,
1: Texas, that was treat. <laughs> yeah, that that's true enough. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Uh, yeah it's, it's funny because i think about it going back to rucker multiple times and i can't even remember seeing air force aircraft so it, it, yes, you guys <laughs> hide very well uh of course you're you know, busy eating mres in a tent apparently of the course entire yeah time, so, yeah ruck marches um, yeah yeah I mean, that's right ruck marches every day we didn't <laughs> even drive um yeah so okay so you finish there you, you you pin on your wings i mean what's next so you obviously for you you you, you know you're going back to what we call Fort living room, you know, you, you're going back home cause you're a guard guy or, or, or what have you. But, uh, for, let's say somebody's active duty and they get, they get picked to fly, whatever. What happens next? Where do they go?
3: Sure. So actually everyone goes to the same schoolhouse. Um, once you okay. leave Fort Rucker, depending on what aircraft you're flying, it doesn't matter if you're a guard or reserve or active you go to the same schoolhouse. So, um, after Fort Rucker, it was out to, uh, Kirtland air force base in New Mexico. Uh, it's, uh, okay. pretty much in Albuquerque. Um, yeah, and that course was, well, what it's supposed to be and what ends up being are two different things normally um, <laughs> yeah. due to trying to squeeze people through the pipeline and weather and all that jazz. But um, that's the HH-60G schoolhouse and will be the 60 whiskey uh, schoolhouse when that aircraft comes online. Um, so that's where, you know, it goes through the same kind of progression. Here's all your basic stuff. Here's remotes. Here's instrument. And I'm like, OK, here's how to, you know, tactically employ the aircraft in, in a basic sense. Um, you know, and there's been back and forth, there's been different syllabi with okay, well, how advanced do we want to get with these students? Um, yeah. you know, in terms of the tactic side of the house, do we want to have the operational units, their home station units, you know, basically top them off with that knowledge, or do we want to try and front load as much as we can? But that's that's where you get qualified. Um, you know, both basic basically and tactically in the sixty is out of Kirtland. Um and then the only thing that was left for me after that was going up to uh lovely Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, Washington for uh lovely three weeks of uh SEER school, Survival Evasion Resistance. Oh, yeah. Escape. Yeah.
1: So that was yeah, fun. Yeah, that's always a good time. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we do that at Rucker as well. Um, I imagine it's a little bit different in Washington, though.
3: Depends yeah, on the year. Depends on time of year. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So how long you may have said, how long is the training for the 60? Um, so it was for me, I started in, I want to say
3: mid November and I graduated in early June. Um, so
1: just over six months. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's interesting because, you know, you kind of touched on a point that, that we noticed in the last interview talking to Alex, who's a Navy uh hawk pilot and right. you know a very different mindset and and you kind of touched on it the air force was was back and forth about it you know in the army it's very much like individual skill you're done yep you go to your unit and you're gonna learn all that tactical stuff Whereas, right. it's not like the navy you, you know you're doing three years and you're popping out but you're a, a you know ready to go mission pilot and everyone expects that from you right um so i mean what is kind of the result though like you're that i sure. mean you're saying no, in november to june that's six seven months right what are you coming out as when you show up to your unit are, are you considered mission ready to go or what so all almost um and again this is kind of the
3: back and forth of the syllabus they're having is you know do we want to get someone completely full up or do we want to leave a little bit for the the ops units to to accomplish um so you you come out as a you know a mission qualified co-pilot theoretically theoretically you know you would be able to you know deploy within a very short amount of time and there have been guys who have done that um there's a little bit of training at your at your home unit to get accomplished um basically some um some tactical top-off training um but you you come out you know again i've spoken to some army guys so i kind of know what you're referencing You, you know we we come out pretty much ready to go with some advanced certifications that are left over um out of new mexico obviously it's pretty darn hard to get people, um, day and night water operations qualified. <laughs> you know, right. there's, there's not really yeah. any open water out there for the most part. Uh, there are a couple options, but, um, they leave that mostly for the operational units to, you know, certify someone And Hey, here's, you know, day and night water operations training, how to get people into if they need to, and, and then out of the water. Um, and, and a couple other advanced certifications, but, um, for, for the most part, you're, you're fully tactically qualified.
1: Yeah. So, I mean wherever you're based at there's going to be some special sure. sort of things that are unique to your area, you know, and, uh, I imagine you know, of course, local area orientation type flights and understanding Absolutely. where you're yep. at and things like that. Yep. But, but just a deployment standpoint readiness, you guys are basically ready to go. And then, and then I assume it's kind of like the Navy where over time you, you've got to build the chops to then be, uh, an aircraft commander or a pilot commander. What, yeah. what, what terminology do you guys use?
3: Yeah. So the progression for a, uh you know, a new pilot coming out of Kirtland is you're a your co-pilot first. Um, and then the new pilot progression syllabus that we have, you'll you'll work your way up to basically um, a basic aircraft commander, which is you can be an aircraft commander for um, anything that's not tactical. So like anything that's not like low level flying, you know, gunnery, things like that. Um, from there, you'll work your way up to a f- fully qualified mission pilot, which is you can be the aircraft commander for, Um, you know, pretty much anything that we do and anything that you're qualified for in terms of special certifications. Um, From there, the next stop would be Flight Lead, which we normally employ in a flight of two. Um, You know, very, very, very seldom is there anything over two. Um, And then from there, it's Instructor Pilot and then Evaluator Pilot. Um, So I, you know, Instructor Pilot, um, you typically will go back out to Kirtland. Uh, There have been some instances where um, people will go out to potentially the uh, uh, the weapons school out in um, Nellis Air Force Base for part of that, which was um, I was fortunate enough to be able to take part in that. Um, and an evaluator pilot is pretty much, you know, both of those are, all, all of these are, you know, um, at the unit commander discretion and there's usually training review boards that happen with reviewing someone's hours right. and performance and what are they certed in and, you know, a decision is made to advance that person, you know, into a position or uh, or to hold them back so
1: okay well let's go back to flight school and just kind of review as far as so we've talked about the training and these are the things that you're going to do but what's it like i mean what's the culture <laughs> like sure uh you know when you're going through that that initial fixed wing uh training you know is it is it pretty pretty intense is it you know you made you made a comment about some slacking off time or whatever like like what's a normal day in the life if you will
3: yeah so yeah phase one the academics uh, again i didn't go out to ifs so i don't really know quite what things are like out there i hear they try to mirror the flight line as much as they can to prepare people um but phase one is pretty much like okay hey i've got you know aviation physiology from this time to this time and then this class from this time to this time other than that your time is yours um hmm you know, at least when I went through it. Um, phase two, it gets entirely different. Um, you're on this policy of initially when you show up and for quite a while called your entire flight is, your entire class. Um, a class is assigned to a flight. Um, it's called formal release. So you're, you're pretty much pulling 12-hour days, which is, you know, the, the, the crew duty day for for training for a lot of um, platforms, including a T6, um, to the point where you pull up into the parking lot outside the squadron. And you're waiting and you're waiting waiting and you get out of the car and you go in and you're waiting to get into the flight room door. And it's like, OK, hack 12 hours now. Boom, go. Uh, <laughs> and everyone's kind of rushing inside. You're trying to get the uh, the morning brief uh, set up for the uh, for the class. Um, you're trying to get everything set up for when the instructor pilots walk in. That someone is up there giving a brief, including, you know, someone from your class is up there giving a brief to include weather um, and notams and, and things like that. Um, and then they'll usually give you what's called a, uh, a stand-up emergency procedure. So one of the instructors um, will walk to the front of the room. They'll verbally describe, um, you know, some flight conditions and, you know, an indication that you would get. And you'd all be copying this down in your seats. And then they would randomly select someone and say, okay, Lieutenant, so-and-so, you have the aircraft. <laughs> um, so then you would have yeah. to get up to the other side of the table, bring all your checklists with you, and and verbally walk through everything that you would do to, you know, Get to some sort of a safe conclusion, um, but it, it's yeah, it's phase two is um, it's kicking the pants, man. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it's uh, it's entirely dependent on I would say, from my experience, on on your class and your classmates um, as to you know how successful your class is, um, and also you know how much fun you manage to have on on the weekends. Where it's pretty much like, hey, Monday through Friday, you're 100 percent devoted to what's going on in, in that training pipeline. Um, and the advice we got from even our instructors was okay, hey, Friday night let loose, Saturday let loose, and then yeah. Sunday, halfway through the day, like, hey, it's time to get start getting back into the books. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> back at it. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: We, yeah, we had, you know, daily questions is what sure what okay. really yep. was the thing. Is that, does that sound like something you guys had as well? We
3: had those in, uh,
1: in Rucker. Um,
3: of course. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, during T6s, you know, you've got, You've got a multitude of things you can be um what's called opted for in the syllabus as you get further along. So it's like, well, once I complete this event and this event, like I could go do a flight, or I could do a simulator, or I could be opted for this like academic class. And so like you kinda need to be ready for all of that. Um so it's 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 a big exercise and kinda like, you know, task management, which is obviously appropriate for aviation. Um, um but yeah, T6s t- is, it's, it's, it's no joke, but it can be a lot of fun too. Um, and then my personal experience at Phase 3 in Rucker, um, it's kind of gone back and forth a little bit. But um, it was a little bit more, they, they treated you a little bit more like, okay, hey, you know what you're doing. Um, sure. You know, so it was a little bit more of slightly relaxed environment, um, but, but not, not too much, especially during once you start to get into the tactical phases. Um, you know, They're they beating you up pretty good. In terms of mission planning and you know because that's your first introduction to low level and planning for that kind of low altitude environment um right and then kirtland at least for the front enders for the pilots um as long as you were showing the solid effort and you knew your general knowledge about the systems and the tactics that you could read about um the instructors are more than willing to meet you halfway you know they at that point they they want to see you succeed right they've spent so much time and effort invested into you um, whereas that's one of the first exposures for most of the, uh, the enlisted crew members, the, the back enders that we fly with. Um, so for them,
1: Kirtland is a very different
3: experience. I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, and that, you're right. I mean, at, at some point there's a, a switch that's thrown where it's like, okay, we've put a lot of time and money into this guy. Cause, cause helicopters ain't cheap and, and training guys right. to fly. Yeah. Something that, it's one of the things that Rucker that they changed, uh, uh, put seer school in the beginning because they they did have so many guys you know they spent you know spent a year on a guy right getting him to be a fully qualified apache pilot and right. and now he goes to seer and fails it's like well oh okay, man now yeah. what, you know yep. <laughs> so they put it on the front end and, and doing it before uh which which is probably a good good idea but yeah um, i could see that argument yeah yeah um so, how big were your classes when you were at Rucker? When you were actually doing the helicopter portion, how right. big was a class? Oh, it was
3: it was relatively small. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head—probably seven, maybe eight—and they're they're oh, they're wow. all going to castigate me for not exactly remembering. But
1: <laughs> yeah, you forgot about me. Uh, yeah, no, exactly.
3: <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 a pretty small class, guys, at Rucker.
1: So, any uh interesting sort of social events or milestones you know like in the army we had the solo cycle right uh, even though it kind of went away i think it's, it's making its way back but you know after you solo they had this big big event with this funky uh helicopter looking bicycle and then of course the <laughs> navy can't you can't go 10 days without having some sort of special you know event course. to yeah. celebrate yeah. something seems yeah. you know, like in the navy but um but i also know the air force is not far off from that so so you guys probably had some sort of special little things here and there
3: yeah so um big events in in air force pilot training are um, your initial solo in uh in t6s um Mm -hmm. so at least when i was going through you would you know your instructor would say like hey hey like you're you're up for your solo flight um you know you'd brief with them you'd brief with the ops supervisor you'd go off and do your flight and then the challenge was to try and evade all your classmates and get back into the flight briefing room without uh-huh. being caught. Um, which I'm trying to remember in my class, I don't think anyone successfully did that. If you made it back, um, I believe it was everyone had to buy you drinks or something like that. Um, but if you got caught, which as far as I recall, all of us did because everyone's out there watching the flight line, watching you and listening to you on your radio and listening for you to goof something up. Um, so you, you get caught and then you get thrown into this um this big tank of water that the the class will paint up with you know their slogan or logo from the patch you know that they make up or whatever um you know and obviously there's there's some celebrating you know that night or that weekend um and other major events um in Air Force pilot training uh, track select like kind of the end of like towards the end of uh, T sixes where everyone figures out kind of at least what general mission they're going to um that was that was a big party. As was uh, as was drop night, which is pretty much when you get your assignment um, about a week prior to graduation, I think, at Fort Rucker, um, where everyone figures out like kind of what aircraft and what base they're going to be assigned to. Uh, Those those are those are all pretty big social events um, during Air Force pilot training.
1: All right. So you finish up training, uh, you go through SEER uh which you know I uh, <laughs> there's so much we talked about with sear but yeah. then there's also non-disclosure so exactly. it, yeah. it, it's just an interesting time and you've never quite lived until you've gone through it I, but, uh, I i describe
3: it as it's the best training that i never want to go through again it,
1: I, well i think that's great because i i did not enjoy it but i look back on it very fondly absolutely yeah. um which it also helps that I went like you said in a very good time of year. I think I went like a May April time frame and yeah. the weather was perfect. But uh, uh you do learn a lot of interesting things and, and it is a lot of fun in retrospect but at the time. And any army course where they let you grow a beard and encourage you to kind of relax <laughs> a little bit it's a good thing but um it was the one time that I was living outdoors in Fort worker. so There you go. So much yeah. for the tent. So much <laughs> for the tent thing. But um um Okay, so but you finish all that training and now you go back to your unit. So so tell us what is it like being a brand new, you know, what we would call a line pilot in the army, but, you know, a mission pilot, whatever, whatever term you guys use. But you show up to your unit, you're freshly minted pilot. What's that like? Yeah, so you you certainly feel
3: like, you know, everything that you do, or at least I felt um, that everything that I was doing was was being watched, um, you know, by by not only my peers, um, you know, on, on the front end of the aircraft, not only the pilots, um, my fellow co-pilots and, you know, on up to instructor and, you know, squadron commander. Um, but also by, by our enlisted crew members, um, which were, you know, we, we have a very tight relationship with those guys, um, in, in the air force community. Um, you know, we all kind of fly and operate together and we're all part of the same crew They're They're responsible for, um, a lot of things that, you know, other service branches their enlisted crew members might not be responsible for they 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 pre-flight the helicopter um they're responsible primarily for reading off the checklists they do a lot of system analysis with us um they'll operate the hoist the weapon systems on the aircraft so they're you know among other things so they're you know when you have a senior enlisted crew member you know on on a flight with you or just watching how you do things around the squadron it's you know it's at least i felt you know some some pressure but that's not a bad thing all the time. No. Um, yeah. yeah, so you're, you you have, when you go back, at least on the guard side, um, now they've, they've upped it, where you can get up to a year's worth of, uh, of orders, um, which is a great thing. When I went through, it was only 90 days worth, um, where you were active duty the entire time out at the base. Um, so during that time, like you're, you're expected, hey, you're, you're flying as much as you can. You're getting those additional certifications that they weren't able to get you out of Kirtland. Uh, they're basically topping you off to be ready to to go off to to deploy. You know, if if we need to or respond to something within the United States for disaster relief or something. Um, but if if you're not flying, like hey, you should be in the books. You should be studying. You should be in the uh, the intel vault. You know, looking at all the classified documents and on you know, Cippernet or the classified internet. Basically, for those who aren't familiar with that, um, or, or JWICS if your squadron has that. Um, so yeah, there's there's certainly um, there's certainly a good deal of pressure, which is like I said, it's 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 not a bad thing um, when you're when you're back in the squadron
1: for the first time. So you're saying that in the guard, at least Air Guard, that that they are putting you on active guard orders so that you can essentially get get good. You know, you're, yeah. you're training and yeah. flying and and doing all that stuff and not yep. having to worry about. Well, I'm also a know whatever exactly right yeah okay okay that's interesting i didn't know that that's that's a pretty good idea because yeah i mean those are formative you know months and years right there in those early days and uh everything that you learn and get codified at that time is going to stick with you for the rest of your your career so yeah that's interesting i didn't know that so you're a mission pilot for a while or or a co-pilot uh and then like we kind of talked about earlier at some point you know based on I'm, I'm sure it's a, true across the board and all the branches. It's really based on not so much time, but maturity, right? And your decision-making sure. process yep. and, and how you, how you, you know, obviously control the aircraft, but also control of a crew, yep. control of another aircraft. And they're sort of, uh, nurturing that as you go. And, and eventually you'll be made a, a, a what did you say? We call it a pilot in command. What did you guys call it? Yeah. So we'll
3: go first. We'll make someone a, um, uh, I forget what the terminology is now, but b- basically a basic aircraft commander, um, ba- basic okay. aircraft qualified, um, right. so they can do everything that's non-tactical, and then mission pilot, which is everything tactical, flight lead, and then instructor
1: evaluator. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. And so, for for the unit that you're in, that is a combat search and rescue unit, or how is that designated?
3: Yeah. So we're we're the 101st Rescue Squadron, um, and so the the way the Air Force kind of structures the the 60G. Uh, community is that we are we're we're dedicated personnel recovery um now without going too far into the weeds personnel recovery can do mean anything from um you know a non-combatant evacuation operation you know pulling out an embassy which is mainly something that the marines do that they're you know best equipped for in most cases um all the way up to you know, kind of the higher end of things that we train for, you know, combat search and rescue, someone isolated, you know, behind the front line of combat in a, you know, conventional full-blown scenario, or, you know, even hostage rescue, CASVAC, you know, there's all kinds of things along that spectrum. Um, but our primary mission is combat search and rescue. Um, but anything else, personnel recovery is certainly something that we could be uh, tasked to do overseas and then um stateside you know where we've obviously done um a fair amount of uh search and rescue um possibly not as much as we would have liked to do because guys are always chomping at the bit but uh
1: we've certainly gotten more into it since 2017 so do you guys uh, i mean i'm assuming there's coast guard up where you're at do you guys work with them at all or is it just kind of you guys are kind of doing your own thing or? yeah so the nearest coast guard air station uh, kind of smack
3: in the middle between two uh probably slightly closer to cape cod um, where they've got MH60s out of there, um, and then they've got 65s out of uh, Atlantic City. Um, so, the, yeah, the Coast Guard is the primary, you know, search and rescue response force for especially for anything in maritime, um, which is which is understandable. Um, we've we've gone we've done a couple exercises with them. Um, you know, I'd obviously like to work, uh, you know, more with them, and uh, we've certainly picked up um, some work, especially for flying around the local area. Um, One of my techniques is always to keep listening on uh, uh, Marine Channel 16, which is the international hail and distress frequency. And if we hear something going on, we'll certainly offer up our help, you know, if we're we're able to do so. We've gotten uh, a couple of
1: assignments that way, Um, but certainly the Coast Guard is, is the primary. And then for the Air Force, are all the other than when you get into kind of special operations, but are all the helicopter squadrons, are they all essentially the same thing, combat search and rescue, or is there other types? Uh the, the sixty the sixty community sixty G community which will be the sixty whiskey
3: community. Um yes, that's that's all kind of the same mission focus right there. Um what's currently the UH one N and will be the MH one thirty nine. Um their squadrons have a couple different jobs, um, depending on where they're at. There's a number that are located, um, let's see, Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming. They're primarily uh, uh ICBM missile field support in terms of getting crews out there, um, security force response teams, um, escorting convoys that, that kind of thing. And then they do some civil SAR on the side. Um, there's a unit that supports the year school out in Washington primarily. Um, and then there are two units, there's one in Japan and one in Andrews, um, that do, uh, uh, DV support and a, a couple other, uh, missions.
1: Alrighty. Well, that's a good rundown. Um, I want to take a look at a couple of these questions that we got from listeners. Uh, you know, I'd let everyone know that, that I was gonna be talking to, to you and, kind of asked, you know, what, what are some things people want to ask? And I, I sent these to you, but it looks like we've covered a lot of them. Uh, you know, one of the big questions was, uh, kind of what you were just talking about, any changes coming to CSAR airframe and equipment. So you, you were talking about the going from the 60 Gulf to the 60 whiskey. What, uh, what fundamentally is different. Yeah.
3: So it's, it's interesting to mention that because my full-time job since 2015 is, um, I've actually been working, um, with Sikorsky. That's, that's my full-time job on, on the 60 whiskey program. Okay. um, so yeah, things major things are the difference between the 60G and the 60 Whiskey. If I was to put it in a nutshell, um, the um, I think the defense systems are are a big leap. Um, I think the situational awareness that the crew will have in terms of uh, data link um, are is, is is quite a big thing. Um, you mean like link 16? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So right now, you know, and this will probably lead into a question uh, that I saw you've got later on, but one of the things we've got in the G right now is, is saddle situational awareness data link. Um, right. so we've got that right now, but we'll be going to link 16, um, for stateside flying. Uh, we'll finally be able to do GPS IFR. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, the flight director up front, um, you know, is, is fully coupled. So that, that's going to be uh, a big thing as well for, for guys up front to, uh, to learn. Um, so yeah, there's, I could go on and on about the whiskey. I don't want to tread too, uh, too deeply into it because of my, uh, my Sikorsky gig, but um, I certainly <laughs> think it's going to be, it, it's, it's going to be a good aircraft. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited yeah. for it. Yeah. But
1: fundamentally it's, it's increasing situational awareness as as you and I both know is pro- probably one of the more important things than, you know, anything else. I mean, you can teach a monkey to, to wiggle the sticks and fly a helicopter, but the ability to yeah. understand what's going on and anything that can augment that is. Yeah. And,
3: and one of the big things, too, that just kind of popped
1: into my head is um,
3: right now in the G, we've got um, we can put into the cabin, I should say, um, internal auxiliary fuel tanks um, to kind of exchange our range and duration as, as well as helicopter aerial refueling um, in the right. whiskey because there's obviously plumbing or tubing that runs from those tanks to the main tanks and the transfer system needs to work correctly which usually does if not automatically then manually to get fuel from the auxiliary tanks to the main tanks Um, in the whiskey you're not going to have any of those problems you'll have um, basically two main fuel tanks um, that'll give you um, not quite as much as the maximum amount we can carry right now but a pretty darn good compromise uh, on that without having to worry about all those transfer problems in cabin space and so on and so forth.
1: Do you guys carry wing stores like, like ox tanks on the wings like we do in the army sixties? No, no, we don't. um,
3: You know, I'm pretty sure the wiring is on the aircraft for the um, triple S, but we don't utilize it. Um, All of our fuel is either in the mains or so there's a few different options for fuel in the cabin or in the aux tanks. Um, the most we can carry is uh, dual 185-gallon tanks, which will give us about uh, 4,700 pounds of gas. Um, and then there is the option for a single 200-gallon tank, which will give us 3,600. And then you can go with the single 185, which will give you around uh, just over 3,400, I believe. Um, and then obviously that that's extended by air refueling if you've got the assets in theater or, or, or FARP. But... No, we don't carry anything um, out of uh, out of the uh, e S system. No,
1: okay. and I'll probably be attacked if I don't ask you this question because um, <laughs> you did you, you bring up the air refueling capability, but where is that trained at? At what phase do you learn how to do that? Is that within the flight school, or is that once you get to your unit? Um, that's normally at Kirtland.
3: Yeah, um, out in okay. New Mexico is is where you get that. We had some guys for a while. There was some tanker availability issues, uh, some air refueling probe issues that we did that training at home station. Um, but for the vast majority of people, that's out of Kirtland in New Mexico.
1: Okay. And is that a like a annual or semi-annual requirement that you got to do so many refuels? The, or how does that work? Right,
3: right now, the currency for it. And this changes. It's changed a few times yeah. since I've been in the community. But right now, it's 180 days. Essentially, six months is the currency okay. um, for air refueling. Now, does that equal proficiency like you're necessarily good yeah. at it uh, especially when you're new absolutely not but that's the currency for yeah.
1: no. Okay. no is the answer <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> exactly how, how many do you have to do just one
1: every 180 days or
3: uh no so there's there's minimum requirements that are spelled out for each train event we've got so you need okay. to have for pilots it's um at least one contact or you know hit as we call them each side left hose and right hose um as well as okay. uh crossing over the uh, the tanker
1: Uh, Let's take a look at some of these other questions. Uh, Two of these kind of blur together airframe use and training and changes occur. You you talked about that already Um, at Rucker. They're kind of switching things out and then comparison between Navy and Air Force CSAR equipment mission type. um, I don't know that the Navy looks at it as a dedicated mission, the way the Air Force does. I don't know if I'm right on that.
3: that. That's, that's not a bad way to, to put it. Um, you know hopefully not offending too many navy folks out there um but you know we have uh we have a you know we've got people from all different walks of life in, in our squadron um but we do have a, a prior navy guy who was a 60 romeo guy which so in the navy to my understanding, 60 romeo and 60 sierra you know they're kind of two different worlds in and of themselves or you know they have, have yeah. two different focuses or foci i don't know if that's even a word uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> anyway the plural of focus yeah um so yeah, they, the I think the key difference when it comes to SAR personal recovery between us and the Navy is is kind of the way you put it um the Air Force looks at this as kind of a dedicated personal recovery asset or personal recovery force um you know as well as the HC-130 and the, the and, and the PJ rescue squadrons um it's kind of like the rescue triad as they call it um right. But yeah, the the navy and really through no fault of their own, they're they're good guys. I've I've trained with them. We've gotten to get down to uh, Key West. I know difficult TDI um, to work oh, with. Yeah, <laughs> to work with the Sierra Squadron who is getting ready to go overseas. To you know, just kind of hey, here's how we kind of think of CSAR or PR um, and and fly with them. Um, but they've got so many other mission sets. You know, they've they've got uh, you know anything basic from you know vert rep or vertical replenishment. You know, from ship to ship to you know sitting the SAR alert off of a carrier which is obviously boring and mundane but important stuff if somebody punches out to you know all the way to naval special warfare support so they've got a lot of things on their plate Um, uh, whereas this yeah. is something that we this is this is our focus this is what we do day in and day out so
1: yeah i was surprised um I, I guess i shouldn't have been but i was surprised talking to my last guest when when he was just like you said the, the romeo and the sierra the differences because he he flew both and okay. both units and and uh was talking about, you know, all the tactical training and, and, you know, the weapons employment, you know, shooting torpedoes and and hellfires (laughs) and dropping mines and sonar buoys and stuff. And, you know, I'd never really, like, I knew it, but I never really thought about it, but uh, you're right. They're trying to wear a lot of hats with that airframe and uh, the air force, you know, just kind of doesn't need to do that. You know, uh, you're not doing air assaults and you're not shooting torpedoes at people. So, so what do you need helicopters for? Uh, but personnel recovery is a huge one, and and all, uh, I think aviators across you know all the services definitely recognize the value of having a force that's dedicated and capable of doing that because that's that's you know probably who's going to come get you if, if things go bad and you're you're downtown. So
3: yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting to bring up the um, the Navy weapons employment. We've got you know the one guy in our squadron who he went to the uh, the Navy weapons instructor course, um, hmm. and so we're. You know, in in the 60G, we can have mini guns or, or 50 cal on the aircraft, and that can be either forward fire or, or flex fire out the side of the aircraft. So we're, we're we're fairly familiar with you know gunnery patterns and you know sure. uh, call for fire, five line rotor wing cast, um, all that stuff. That's that's something that we train to all the time. Um, but we were out working with a Navy Special Warfare team. Um, I think it was out in Kentucky. I wasn't on the trip, but I heard the story relayed to me. And the team on the ground asked just to practice some some hellfire shots we're kind of like what are you talking about and this guy he he just apparently went like full rain man and just kind of like took control of the, you know like laser on <laughs> like rifle time of yeah. flight one minute everyone's like bill what are you even saying but uh, yeah 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 it's funny <laughs> you bring that up because yeah yeah he watched firebirds and just yeah yeah exactly
1: <laughs> yeah. oh lord um okay well no that sounds good and uh yeah i think that was all the, the questions that people had about it and you know I, I think it would be interesting to delve into the the combat search and rescue stuff um you know as as a dedicated topic but uh i think we've kind of hit all the highlights on on flight school and that's really what we wanted to do this for the series and then we'll kind of roll into some other topics so so yeah i'd like to definitely have you back another time and and maybe someone else that that's uh, worked there in your unit or other people that you've worked with, and. Just kind of expand the network of knowledge. And really that's what we're trying to do here is just kind of gather these stories and, and educate people who, you know, they don't really understand a lot of times what we do. And, you know, I was, I was actually talking to my dad yesterday about, uh, about the show and, and kind of revealing some things to him about, you know, things that he just never knew, you know, he right. grew up sure. around yeah. aircraft and well, I didn't know helicopters did that. So, <laughs> um, in fact, I'll never forget my mom visiting during, uh, when I was in flight school, you guys probably had some sort of family day, I assume oh yeah yeah sure yep yeah yeah and the parents came up and i remember you know getting out of the aircraft and my stick buddy jumped in to fly and my my, my mom says uh oh, they don't land the way i thought they'd land." like well, you, you know in the movies they always seem to just come straight down and land you know yeah yeah but uh but no i appreciate uh you taking the time and and kind of uh Clearing things up for us as far as trying to understand how the Air Force uh, does things and and uh, the the pathway that other people might be interested in in pursuing and and kind of understand what's in store for them and it sounds it sounds exciting you know I think the, the Air Force and the Navy guys get a little bit more fun than the Army guys because you get to do some some fixed wing stuff but uh, yeah um, yeah you know, but I, like I said I, in the last one too we talked about this I, I think it's you know there's there's good and bad to to both sides and yeah definitely how you do things and you know end result is all that matters and i think the end result is everybody's getting after it so definitely but uh but thanks for coming on and and spending some time with me here on a on a monday night yeah no problem brian thanks for the invite again so luke are you jealous that we never got to do any air to air refuel
2: a little bit i i would have uh, <laughs> always have advocated for refueling boom on a 58d it was one of our uh well, more difficult obstacles to bypass
1: yeah it had to be a, a really tiny hose otherwise we'd have been tipped over the whole time
2: yeah, no kidding.
1: Um, yeah, any other thoughts from uh, listening to that?
2: Yeah, so I like that uh, their approach to it, it seemed like it built in intensity. So you talked about the beginning part where he was, you know, a little more late background. He got to kind of clap out of some of that with having some fixed swing civilian time. That was a big help. Um, yeah. But it's just neat to see the different forces. One, the, the recruiting model to get pilots in, you know, that, the international guard path he spelled out is that's attainable for people. And it really just takes finding somebody to ask the questions to, to get in contact with them. And it's kind of sad that more people don't know about it because I think there's a lot of people that would really appreciate that opportunity. They just, you got to know it's there.
1: Yeah. I actually had a guy that worked for me this past year. He decided he was going to get out of active duty and, uh, and I I pointed him at the air guard and I said, look, you know, that, that seems like a really good deal um you know i i don't remember if it was an interview or not but i was talking to sean about you know it's it's interesting when you look at the army guard and you typically think of older equipment and then you then you talk about the air guard you know and these guys have f-35s and you know brand new whiskey model 60s and things so it's a it's a different force than you know i think that we default think to when we think of the guard but yeah there's a lot of opportunity there um so yeah no i agree I, i think that's an interesting way that they kind of uh you know, it's almost like applying for a job at a a particular unit. And of course, being in the guard, you're going to stay at that same unit for quite a while. So you're going to build a lot of a lot of good relationships.
2: So there's some pros and cons, uh, being in the national guard with people being on station for a long time, you know, they're all either part of the state or commute there to, or were at one time in the state and you get some really good continuity. Sometimes there's some, uh, Second and third order political effects because guards kind of operates like a family for the most part. And on assessment visits, we got to see some of the best maintained facilities and well run programs. Um, but sometimes there was the full other extreme. There wasn't much middle ground. So the guardians were usually really super squared away, had their stuff locked down tight, had fantastic facilities. Obviously, all, you know, for a lot of their stuff is funded by the state. Uh, yeah. You know, but, uh, of course there were a few outliers there that weren't as well prepared or well monitored and run. Yeah.
1: No, that's true. Okay. Well, listen, I appreciate you, uh, taking the time to help me out with this episode. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the, the talk and, you know, I, I am a little jealous of these other branches. They get a, little, get a little, uh, fixed wing time. Um, I guess I'm disappointed on their behalf though. They don't seem to get any licensing out of it. Uh, but i I imagine that transfer is over pretty easily if they do want to get their license later um but uh yeah it sounds like a a good time and and pretty intense i was actually kind of surprised the way that he described the air force when it seemed a little bit more intense than i expected it to be you know i i figured they were going to have you know half days all the time and uh you know catered lunches and things but but they also thought that we were going to be living in tents so right
2: (laughs) it probably balances out somewhere in the middle
1: all right. Well, I think that wraps it up for this week's episode. Again, episode seven. I'm pretty proud that we've even made it this far. So uh, thanks for everyone coming along on the journey. And as always, uh, the views expressed by the guests and hosts on their own do not represent Department of Defense or any private business. Appreciate you guys listening and we'll talk to you later. Take care.